Providing for your family is a top priority. But what happens when you need affordable health care? Christian Healthcare Ministries could save you up to 40% today. As a member, you can choose your provider without network restrictions. Sign up at your convenience with our anytime enrollment. Join a Christian community that supports each other's medical expenses, offering peace of mind as you prioritize what's most important. Enroll now at yourchm.org. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm Madison Allworth. I'm Bill Hemmer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. House Republicans are readying an impeachment inquiry, alleging President Biden may be corrupt. And polling shows some independents think he might be too. You know, whatever advantage he had over Donald Trump with respect to, you know, integrity and trustworthiness, that's evaporating, which moves you to where he was when Trump ran against Clinton. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Even some of her fellow Democrats are questioning the wisdom of temporarily suspending open and concealed gun carry laws in New Mexico's most populous county. The governor says she did it after several recent homicides of children. This has gone way too far. And I think this is a unifying message that we have as New Mexicans. We want to keep our constitutional rights. They absolutely are absolute, and we will fight hard for them. And I'm Jason Rantz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. House Republicans are turning up the heat on President Biden. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. So House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has directed committees to open an impeachment inquiry into the president's involvement in his son's overseas business dealings, even while he was vice president. And Hunter Biden was on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. Eyewitnesses have testified that the president joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions. Dinners resulted in cars and millions of dollars into his son's and his son's business partners. Republicans also say the president lied over and over in his denials during the campaign in 2020. I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. House Democrats have been dismissive of the Biden investigations. Congressman Jamie Raskin said at a July hearing, We can conclude that this Inspector Clouseau-style quest for something that doesn't exist has turned our committee into a theater of the absurd, an exercise in futility and embarrassment. The White House has also derided the Republican investigation, calling it crazy, not based on fact or truth, just partisan shamelessness. I can't help but go back to, um, you know, the 1990s and the, the Clinton impeachment proceedings. Darren Shaw is a professor of government at the University of Texas and a Fox News pollster and member of the Fox News National Decision Desk. A time when the Republicans, I think, fought politically as well as, um, you know, I guess uh, institutionally or ethically that they had an obligation to sort of proceed. They were, you know, in receipt of Ken Starr's report and all that. And uh, it redounded very much to their detriment in the 1998 midterm elections. And and of course, that did lead to an impeachment and an acquittal in the Senate. We had acquittals in the Senate with President Trump and his two impeachments. Why do you think the 90s with Clinton is more like the Biden case than the Trump cases? Well, I think the the party doing the impeaching 
is is the similarity. Obviously. OK, gotcha. I, I think, you know, with the with the Democrats impeaching Trump. Uh, now, here's here are the similarities between the most recent episodes with Trump and this episode. It, it, it was reflects a different house, a house in which the main fear of members is um, either they are members of the base or the political party and therefore actually want to proceed and are really kind of out for blood when it comes to the other side. The, the stakes are high and that always kind of assume the other side is doing the most nefarious things. So that's one reality. The second is those who aren't of that ilk are concerned about being primaried. The concern is that you're not going to be sufficiently responsive to your base constituents and you're going to attract a, in this case, it would be a more conservative primary challenge. Okay. So you don't want to be outflanked. Okay. Uh, that was so, that was true with the Dems last time. It's true with the Reaps this time. Okay. Now, as far as being primaried out, even there may be some Republicans who aren't at risk of being primaried out who are in purple districts, though, that if they go too conservative, they could turn some independents off in their district and lose to a Democrat. Isn't that also true? Yeah, and that's actually where I'm going back to the 90s, right? That That is absolutely what happened in the Clinton years, right? With the 98 midterm elections where people assumed the Democrats were going to lose ground and the Republicans, you know, the metaphor was they overplayed their hand and cost, you know, voters who were persuadable and ended up thinking that the Republicans were, you know, they weren't doing the country's work, whereas Bill Clinton was building the economy, et cetera. And that's actually the other touchstone I've got. If your actions lend themselves to a narrative where Joe Biden says, hey, I'm doing the country's work. I'm you know, trying to get this economy back on track and deal with the aftermath of COVID. And they're just playing these political games. I think that's something that could really be problematic for the Republicans kind of moving forward. All so right. that, that's, you know, that's the 98 comparison, at least. Okay. Now, one big difference, obviously, 98 midterms, 2024, President Biden is running for re-election. He may be dealing with impeachment just like President Trump did in 2020. He may be dealing with impeachment while running for re-election. That's when Bill Clinton didn't do that. You're right. It's a fair point. In fact, Clinton was was done. Clinton was exiting one way or the other um, and and was not in play. That That's absolutely right. And I will say, to your point about the how this affects re-election prospects and, and how it could uh, be a problem, a significant problem for Biden, aside from the mechanics of it, Biden's corruption numbers, the, the percentage of people who say that, uh, you know, the word corrupt describes Joe Biden um, have gone from, you know, in the, in the 20s and 30s, which is where they were in 2020 when he ran for election. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's pushing up close to 50 percent now. Now, how many um, how many of those, though, really are just Republicans? Republicans will give you about 40%. So if every Republican thinks that Joe Biden is corrupt, and by the way, we're, we're pushing up towards those numbers right now. It's about 85% of Republicans think that word describes him well, right? That gets you to about 40% overall, Right. say that corrupt describes him. So at this point, now no Democrats are really kind of buying into this as of yet, but independents are. And, and right now, that, that would actually be a real concern for me if I were in the Biden campaign is... You know, whatever advantage he had over Donald Trump with respect to, you know, integrity and trustworthiness, that's evaporating, which moves you to where he was when Trump ran against Clinton, right? That nobody thought either of them was very trustworthy. They thought they were both corrupt and Trump won on other grounds. Biden has had an advantage on that. And if that advantage dissipates, he could be in the same sort of position that Clinton was in 2016. 
another difference here. Hunter Biden may have to go on trial in 2024 because the plea deal fell apart. There's the felony gun charge still at issue. There's the uh, tax evasion misdemeanors. That was what the plea deal was involved in, and that fell apart. There could be a trial for the president's son before the election. Again, that's something that Bill Clinton didn't deal with, and that's also something that President Trump didn't deal with. No, you're right. And, and you could have these dueling trials. Yeah, because um, Trump has uh, Trump has four of them. You know, the, the area in which he's got a significant advantage over Trump, which is voters tend to like him and they think he's a good guy, that goes out the window if this stuff really unfolds the way it could, as you suggest. So you, you've done polls that a lot of voters don't want either Donald Trump or Joe Biden in 2024. But the way it looks, the way the polls are now, it looks like that's the way 2024 is going to play out. Does that maybe give the no labels third party movement any kind of traction or no? It's a great question. Uh, Americans have always been ambivalent about third parties, which is you ask them, you know, would you like a, another choice? You know, are you satisfied with these two political parties? We have a long history of saying no. Well, Ross and Perot that, was a unique 92 example where for yes. a while he was tied with Bush and Clinton in 92. And then that all went away and he came back in the fall and didn't quite, you know, he only got 19 percent. But that's still a lot of votes. It is. And in fact, I remember doing polling in in that race and and Perot, for a very brief point in time, took the lead. He was at about 41 (laughs) percent. That's amazing. Uh, Having said that, is there an opportunity? Is there room for a third party movement? Yes, I I would say not only no labels, but in the following sense, if no labels or if Cornell West or, or if Donald Trump doesn't win the nomination and chooses to run as an independent candidate, these are all possible scenarios, right? The, the idea that Trump, if Trump were to lose the Republican nomination contest, the idea that he would concede and endorse the Republican candidate strikes me as fanciful. I mean, when, when has he ever conceded losing an election? So I, I see all sorts of potential third party challenges in this race with a variety of different kind of strategic possibilities. Um, setting aside Trump as a third party or an independent candidate, I do think that the best you could do at this point as an independent candidate is to peel off three to ten percent, depending upon the charisma and the disaf- of the third party candidate and the disaffection with the two existing parties. And what that would do is, if unless it's random and it wouldn't be random, it would disproportionately come from one side or the other. You could tilt the balance in enough pivot states to really, really be a player. Okay. Um, I don't think a third party gets uh, enough of the vote even to win a single state, um, but you could absolutely tip the outcome. Yeah, and Cornell West Green Party, right? Yep, yeah. exactly. All right, you talked about what if Trump didn't win the nomination. We've had the indictments now. We've had the first debate. The next one's coming up in two weeks. Has there been, in your polling, in, in your gauge of voters, any kind of erosion in that strong Trump lead? Yes, but very subtle. Um, we're just now starting to ask the intensity of support questions. So that'll be in our in our September survey, which we're releasing later this week. We've seen in the aggregation of polls uh, from other organizations, we've seen a very, very slight diminution in Trump's support. And it's it's it may even be statistical noise. But you do see some movement below him. It's pretty clear Ramaswamy is challenging DeSantis as, as sort of the number two. The other thing that's, again, a, a little below the radar screen, but it's building on the first debate, uh, there, there is some movement towards Nikki Haley, that, that she does seem to be at least getting some attention 
as the non-Trump candidate. Right? It's interesting because DeSantis and Ramaswamy, you know, they're they're fighting for the sort of everybody but Trump lane, but they're not non-Trump candidates. They're very much appealing to his supporters and kind of in his tradition. Haley is the first one of the, the kind of the underlings who may be having or at least positioning herself for a breakout moment. And that's a critical question. Is there, is there a non-Trump candidate that's going to appeal to people who just don't want to support Trump moving forward on the Republican side? Among the Democrats, though, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Marianne Williamson, are they, even with a Biden impeachment, are they at all threats for the nomination for the president? I don't think so. The Democrats have, have done a pretty good job of buttoning down their nomination contest. Absent some kind of medical or, or other unforeseen event, I, I just don't see it happening. Darren Shaw, professor of government at the University of Texas, member of the Fox News National Decision Team and a Fox News pollster. We'll look for the poll later in the week. Darren, thanks very much for joining us. Great to see you. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash to book. Restrictions may apply. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. New Mexico's governor suspended open and concealed carry laws in Bernalillo County, home to Albuquerque, for 30 days and on carrying guns on state property. I think it's time to talk about the absoluteness of the discussion and the current court actions. Uh, that suggests that the Second Amendment is an absolute right and none of the others are. Lawsuits have been filed and some gun owners protested in Albuquerque after the order was announced. Some of those protesters were armed. This will not stand. We will not comply. The sheriff in Bernalillo County, John Allen, says he will not enforce this. The temporary ban challenges the foundations of our Constitution, but most importantly, it is unconstitutional. My oath was to protect the Constitution, and that is what I will do. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham enacted this order as a public health emergency, and she cites in the emergency recent homicides of children, a 13-year-old girl on July 28th, a 5-year-old girl on August 14th, and an 11-year-old boy on September 6th. In this emergency, this 11-year-old and all these parents who have lost all these children, they deserve my attention. Albuquerque suffered from high violent crime rates for years, with a recent peak year for violent crime being 2017. Many crimes have decreased since then, though, and so far this year, the homicide rate is down compared to last year by 11%. After the governor's temporary 30-day order, some New Mexicans questioned the order. Her own attorney general sent her a letter saying, you probably can't just rebrand gun violence as a public health emergency, and that after COVID, it may be unwise to stretch the definition of such an emergency. The blowback was instant. It was immediate. John Block is a Republican state representative for New Mexico's 51st district in Otero County, New Mexico. My emails were blowing up, getting text messages, phone calls from everywhere across the state and in my district. And what people were saying essentially was this has gone too far. This governor 
who has abused us repeatedly, almost on a daily basis, has finally crossed a line that we're not going to let her get away with. Not this time. And they said, you need to do something about this. We need you to take action. So what I've done is uh, work with State Representative Stephanie Lord, who's in Sandia Park, New Mexico, which part of her district is Bernalillo County, Mm -hmm. which is the affected area. We've been working on impeachment articles, and so we're getting those drafted right now because this is something you cannot, you can't do. You can't say, well, my absolute oath to the Constitution is no longer absolute, and the constitutional rights that are enshrined in that Constitution no longer exist, and I can go suspend them at my beck and call. And so that's what we've been doing And it's been a very good support from the community, from people across the state. And we have Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, all saying no more. This has gone way too far. And I think this is a unifying message that we have as New Mexicans. We want to keep our constitutional rights. They absolutely are absolute, and we will fight hard for them. So you you are hearing from Democrats. I've been reading from some Democrats that they're definitely questioning this. I don't know if they would sign on to impeachment articles, but they're they're certainly they're certainly questioning what the governor did. Absolutely. You know, it's going to take some convincing for some of these people to get on board with impeachment. But it's been very encouraging to see what some Democrat representatives and senators have already said. For instance, we have a Democrat senator from southern New Mexico in Donia Anna County, which is a very Democrat blue county. He said to the governor, you need to take away this order. You need to destroy this order because it is so bad and it's so unconstitutional. And he is a trial attorney. So, you know, I guess he would know. He knows his laws backward and forward. That's why he he uses it to do his profession. So we've also heard from state representatives from across the state, Democrats, who said, you need to rescind this order. This is unconstitutional. And these are people who come from Bernalillo County. They come from Gallup. They come from all over the place, Donnie Anna County, uh, Rio Reba County, all over the place in the state. So you see the fury that the people are saying, no more. We do not want to have unconstitutional mandates. And Governor, you have gone way too far this time. She said she was enacting this for 30 days under like a a public health emergency. But on Friday, when she was asked if this order would stop criminals from carrying guns, she said no. What do you make of that? If if you're enacting a rule that says, you know, we're suspending carry, but you also can admit in the same breath that, you know, this won't stop the bad guys. what, what What do you make of this? Well, I think she said the quiet part out loud, you know. The governor, she she knows that this is targeting law-abiding gun owners across the state. And so what she's doing is being as blatant as possible to say, I know these criminals are not going to follow the law. We already know they don't. So I'm going to be punishing law-abiding citizens and harming them so that they cannot protect themselves from these very criminals that I know won't follow laws. But no one would really really want somebody to get injured or hurt. I mean, you're not saying that the, even if the governor's doing no. this, it, it, she's not doing this yeah. in the hopes that a bad guy with a gun hurts a good guy without a gun. Well, I don't know her reasonings. You know, I, I can't speak for the governor and I certainly wouldn't even try, especially after this week and the dumpster fire she has created in the media. But I would say that she admitted that this is not going to target criminals. Who else is going to target? Right. It's going to be law-abiding citizens like me and my constituents. That's who it's going to target. There are lawsuits already 
I wonder your thoughts, because I mean, last year the Supreme Court struck down a law in New York that said if you want to carry concealed, you need to show that you need a gun. And after the Heller decision in 2008, it seems like, you know, between those two, everyone was saying, and legal analysts were saying, these two decisions mean gun rights are protected. But, but the governor here did this suspension as a health emergency. And I think that reminds, at least it reminds me of COVID, that you make decisions about what is allowed or not allowed. But when you invoke health, it's almost like a different level. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, we all know how 14 days or two weeks to stop the spread ended. It ended in three years of lockdowns, at least in New Mexico. So, you know, yeah, I think she thinks maybe there is some credibility with this since she's used it in the past. She has locked down the state before. She has tried to take away certain rights before, and she's gotten away with it despite lawsuits. So I think she's trying to set up a legal challenge to get as far as humanly possible to that line where she can take away as many guns as humanly possible within her right as governor with what she's doing now. So we do see backlash and I hope that this backlash sticks. I really do because it's coming from everywhere. You even have radical anti-gun activists like David Hogg who are saying it's unconstitutional. These are people who fervently want to disarm Americans, and they're even saying this has gone too far. And I, I believe, personally, this backlash on the governor from these kinds of groups is because she's setting back the anti-gun movement years by doing this unconstitutional order that she has put forward unilaterally. Tell me about crime. I mean, the, the governor said she made this decision because there were multiple homicides mm -hmm. in which children were killed. And we, I, we've known that Albuquerque struggled with high crime rates for years. I, I know your district is south of the city, but while other crimes have, have decreased since 2017, I guess that was the high year, homicides in particular have not. How bad is it right now? Oh, it's horrible. It's terrifying what's happening across the state, especially in the metro center of Albuquerque. Because we saw for years the crime going up and up and up. And Democrats have been working. Actually, some of them have been working to try to fix the problem. You know, there were some Democrats who were trying to stop car thefts. And that was a good bill that was killed by radical progressives in committee. That was just this last session. And then Republicans, we sponsored over 40 bills this last legislative session to fix the crime problem by doing things that we would think are common sense, enhancing sentences for repeat offenders, enhancing sentences for people who already are illegally owning firearms and they're felons and they cannot own them by the federal law. These are things that we think are very common sense, but the people in power right now are saying that, well, it, it punishes people and it puts them in prison and they essentially don't want anyone to be put in prison except, I guess, law-abiding citizens now per the governor's order. And we even saw the ACLU came out against the governor's order saying that it would put more people in prison. So right now we're at a turning point in New Mexico where we have an opportunity to say no more to these draconian and power grabbing takes on our constitution. They, they have stretched the constitution so thin and they're trying to do whatever they can to poke as many holes as possible. But I think our governor she just stepped one step too far. It's something that no one can get behind. 
I was reading also, somebody said, you know, this was an abdication of responsibility that if you believe it, this was a person who believed that the governor went too far, that this wasn't the answer. This was simply going around the problem of high crime, that, that you do need to address it, but this, this isn't the way. It, it sounds like you and your colleagues were addressing maybe some ways going after uh, carjackers. I, I know the police chief in Albuquerque said earlier this year that he knew something was working to decrease crime rates because he saw that their jail population had increased. What, what is the answer then in a city that seems, I guess, plagued by this issue, that, that even, even if crime rates are decreasing in some areas, it, it's, maybe it's not enough? Well, I would say, first of all, just in the last two or three days, there have been two homicides in Albuquerque two homicides that came after her order. So it clearly isn't doing anything, even though she's trying to pass it and ram it through. But I think the solutions we have are very common sense. And I think there are things that we agree on, such as the Bernalillo County Sheriff, he's a Democrat, and he agrees that we need to enhance sentences on repeat offenders. I think that's common sense. And that's also something that is plaguing the city and the state. We have repeat offenders who are let out pending bail, and they can go back and reoffend while they're pending bail, or they are a felon, they've already gotten out, and they're getting guns illegally and using them in crimes. A majority of guns that are obtained that are used in crimes are illegal. I believe it's about 90%. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that we have stronger penalties for repeat offending. You know, if an offender says, oh, well, I'm gonna get a 30-year sentence or a 15-year sentence, if I reoffend, maybe they'll think twice about it. But unfortunately, I don't see that penetrating through certain far left members of the legislature. Maybe now after tragedy has struck Albuquerque and we see young children getting shot, maybe they'll actually have something click and say, okay, maybe we should enhance sentences for people who already have proven that they don't show up to court, they will break the law and they are violent people. And I think that's something that we should all get together on. I think even the sheriff of Bernalillo County supports that. New Mexico Representative John Block, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And in other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. It turns out size does matter. Neck size, that is. A new study published in the Scandinavian Journal of Psychology found the perception of how nurturing or protective a man is towards his children is tied to the trapezius muscle. You might know that muscle as your traps. It runs from your shoulder to your neck. Researchers from the University of Arkansas asked 305 male and female participants to look at four computer-generated images of the same man. Everything remained the same except for his neck muscles. Participants rated the pictures based on their perception as the man as a good fighter, interest in long and short-term mating, and effectiveness at protecting and nurturing offspring. The men with large traps were rated more protective of their kids, but lower when it came to interest in long-term relationships, and they were found to be less nurturing. Those with smaller neck muscles were rated as better nurturers. The co-author of the study says we evolved to use a man's neck size as an efficient way of determining his physical prowess, with the neck being more reliable than the face and more immediate than the body as a cue. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back. 
along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Rance. What's on your mind? In the past few years, Oregon and Washington have effectively legalized drugs as part of the Black Lives Matter movement's criminal justice reforms. It's been an abject failure, taking thousands of lives. Now, voters say they've had enough. In the once vibrant cities of Portland and Seattle, radical left activists and politicians spearheaded campaigns to remove police from drug enforcement. Buoyed by anti-police sentiment in the aftermath of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, the radical left were able to convince voters in the Pacific Northwest to greenlight drug decriminalization. Three years later, voters are demanding a return to drug enforcement. The changes in public sentiment should have been expected. Drug legalization advocates promised programs delivering to addicts the help they so desperately needed, eschewing any attempt to quote-unquote criminalize addiction. Multnomah County, where Portland is located, saw fatal overdoses from synthetic opioids like fentanyl jump over 500% between 2018 and 2022. The crisis shows no sign of subsiding, with 911-related overdose calls in the county doubling from May to June of 2023 compared to last year. In King County, with Seattle driving the stats, there have been historic fatal overdose highs each year during the legalization experiment, with 2023 at about 915, on pace to exceed 2020's record-high 1,000. But as I detail in my forthcoming book, What's Killing America? Advocates failed to deliver on promises to treat addiction. The radical left never intended to prioritize drug treatment. Instead, they adopt a radical approach to dealing with drug addicts, and it's already spread outside the Pacific Northwest. It's called harm reduction. This approach aims to reduce the health consequences of drug use, be they physical or mental. But as more progressive-minded politicians and activists gain control over local programs, the envelope was pushed. While voters in Portland and Seattle voiced their displeasure with radical drug policy, they shouldn't expect any changes in the near future. Radical left activists won't give up. While far-left Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler called for Measure 110 to be repealed, the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance is warning that the county would lose $58 million in drug treatment funds. Of course, the argument is disingenuous since addicts are hardly being treated and funds are being spent on harm reduction tools, including needles and pipes. Even Wheeler noted in March that, quote, Here we are two years later and we've seen the decriminalization of hard drugs, but we're not seeing the treatment. In Washington, Democrat state lawmakers relented and reclassified drug possession as a gross misdemeanor after two years of legalization. But Seattle hasn't updated its municipal code to codify the change. Under the current policy, drug charges go to the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office, which won't pursue drug possession cases. As someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest, I've seen this story unfold before. Voters claim they're upset with progressive city governance, but do little to pressure politicians into actually changing course. Often, they vote into office the same kind of radical left politician. 
Will drug legalization be the issue that finally pushes voters in the Rose City or Emerald City to act? Only time will tell. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.